0: Movement created a conversation while Barack Obama was president. Movement uh, responded to the rise of white supremacy. Movement is the reason why Trump is holding on to the last, you know, you know, breaths of white nationalism. Movement is the reason why the resistance had a blueprint. Movement is the reason why Stacey Abrams could run in Georgia uh, in 2018. Movement is the reason why there are more Black women mayors than ever before in the history of this country.
1: I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota.
2: And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator, auntie extraordinaire doula and pleasure activist living in Detroit and this is how to survive the end of the world our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace rigor and curiosity and we are so excited today because we have some very special guests who are going to guide us through how to engage in the electoral process in this corrupt-ass country. And I thought to start off, I would read this quote from Octavia Butler that speaks about kind of the times we're in and the kind of leadership that might come from those times. She says, When apparent stability disintegrates, as it must, God is change. People tend to give in to fear and depression, to need and greed. When no influence is strong enough to unify people, they divide, they struggle one against one, group against group, for survival, position, power. They remember old hates and generate new ones. They create chaos and nurture it. They kill and kill and kill until they are exhausted and destroyed, until they are conquered by outside forces. Or until one of them becomes a leader, most will follow, or a tyrant, most will fear. And I think we're solidly in the tyrant zone right now. Yeah? hmm Pretty solidly in the tyrant zone. So Autumn, who do we have here to help us? So
1: we are so excited. We have today on the show Kayla Reed and Jessica Bird, who are two of the baddest electoral organizers in the game. Kayla and Jessica are part of an electoral consulting firm called Three Point Strategies that works at the intersections of electoral organizing and social justice. They've partnered with the Movement for Black Lives and Democracy and Color on electoral strategy, and they've been hard at work on the 2018 election.
2: Yes, and these are two women who I absolutely adore. I've gotten to facilitate and work with through the Movement for Black Lives, and they're both the kind of people who show up in a room and automatically take it up to a whole nother level and keep it 100. And so it just feels really important heading into this election uh, with all the emotions and all the tensions and all the hope and all the need that we have two such leaders to guide us through how, the, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? How we going to do it? OK,
1: welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for having us.
2: So
1: just by way of of kicking off the conversation, we're wondering if you can tell us about uh, your mutual journeys into electoral organizing from the streets to the ballot box um, and where those different types of political organizing work still meet in the work that the two of you do.
3: Yeah, so this is Kayla, and thank y'all for having us on. Um, my journey into electoral work starts in 2014, when my journey into movement starts um, after the death of Michael Brown. Um, I found myself as an organizer with a local organization here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, really, you know, looking at the, this kind of intersection of how to use movement power. Um, and influence to bring bring policies on the local level. Um, and then when that didn't happen, it, we were kind of, you know, fighting for a couple major things right after um, the uprising in 2014, things like the civilian oversight bill in St. Louis City, things like minimum wage in St. Louis City, which both passed but barely passed. And we started looking at, you know, conversations around how do we replace elected officials that are not passing common sense policy um, in in a majority, you know, a super majority Democratic city like St. Louis. Um, And then also what happened was in March of 2015, it was the first um, municipal election after um, Mike Brown's killing and we knew that Ferguson was a a city that was a municipality that was 70% African American but had no black elected officials, had one person on the city council um in its entire history that was black. And so we that was my first kind of introduction into electoral organizing, recognizing uh very quickly recognizing that a candidate just wasn't enough and re- we had to go far beyond the idea of representation to this kind of Understanding of what co-governance could look like. What does a uh, people-powered movement selecting its own elected officials, getting them into office, and then invoking a strategy together actually look like? Um, and how do we do that in such a way where we're going after the most impactful seats um, with the resources we have toward this kind of long-term strategy? Uh, and and in creating um, what is now Action St. Louis in 2016, that really became one of the largest campaigns of the local organized uh, organization that I helped lead was the Woke Voter STL campaign. And so we went after um, the circuit attorney seat in St. Louis City in 2016, getting Kim Gardner elected as the first African-American uh, circuit attorney in 2017, which is where I met Byrd. Uh, we were trying to see our first black woman mayor uh Tashara Jones we fell short 888 um it's our it's our Holy Grail number uh, I I feel like in November we're gonna have some 888s across the across the ballot um and you know though we lost that race what it ended up really seeding was this larger and even more impactful um campaign that we've launched together, the Electoral Justice Project. And as of recent, our work um, has looked to like um, ousting Bob McCullough, the prosecutor who failed to indict the officer that killed Mike Brown in 2014. Um, We launched a campaign uh, by Bob. Over the summer, had a digital strategy, had a field strategy, had a targeted, we targeted black voters specifically um, with honest messaging. And um, and now we're in the process of transitioning the um, Wesley Bell who won into a seat and actually ensuring that his policy reflects our values um, and not just kind of letting go of the steering wheel after we get you across uh, the, the victory line. Um, and and now we're in general, and you know, general is is not as local as we'd like. You know, we have a senator at the top of our ticket, but we also have some really really important referendums here in Missouri, like increasing our minimum wage statewide, um, some campaign finance laws uh, that will drastically impact kind of how corporations are able to impact our um, our state legislature. And so I'm I'm excited to. What, what thrills me most about this work is having um, real authentic conversations um, with people who are maybe new to the electorate. Um, we have registered so many 18 year olds this year that I'm just like my heart burst at the way that they see voting as a way to fight back against what happened while they were children. Um And I I view, you know, electoral work as an extension of the uprising in 2014. Some of the most tangible victories that we see out of Ferguson are the fact that we're ceding power so that we can impact police budgets, so that we can impact the way incarceration and arrest looks like in our community, so that we can impact um, the economic realities of Black folks in the region. And we go after that one seat at a time, understanding that getting the person in the seat is only one third of the battle um but we have to win on the at, at the ballot box in order to actually uh reckon with this question of what power looks like
0: that's a word indeed <laughs> that's my teammate squad <laughs> um squad so um hello everyone thank you for having me my name is Jessica Bird and um First and foremost, proud to be on Team Electoral Justice. Mm. Um, So I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. And the story that, the origin story I always tell is that I was really born to the first, um, you know, feminist, first activist I ever knew, but she didn't use that language. Um, and my mama worked at the polls every election day to make a little bit of extra money before Christmas. And uh, and every election day morning, she would take, uh, my dad would take me in one hand and like some shea butter <laughs> in the other hand. And my mom would do my hair at like 6am on election day mornings while she signed people in to, to vote. And uh, that process, you know, of growing up, in a really working poor, predominantly black neighborhood, um, being, a, you know, a, a poor family, um, and feeling like my mom had like a lot of power and that people would ask her questions and people treated her with a lot of respect because of the work that she did at the polls was something that as a kid just never left me. And so I got really kind of, um, you know, obsessed with the electoral process and, and why voting seemed to be the superpower in my community. And um, so I joined my first campaign when I was 17. Mm. And what I learned on that campaign was um, a, that there's actually a formula to win elections and that, um, you know, it's called a win number, that there's literally an exact number of votes that you can often do the math to figure out in order to win an election. And as a 16-year-old poor black girl, I just felt like that was so fascinating mm. and I wanted to tell everybody about it and I wanted to crack that code and win as much as possible. And... Um, I uh, really became addicted to campaigns for the next several years and um, uh, have worked on campaigns in 43 okay. states for hundreds of candidates. I spent five years at EMILY's List, which is um, the nation's largest organization to elect Democratic women. And, um, and you know, really, I would say that, you know, I, I've, I've always been like a deeply politicized person about race. Um, I've identified as a black queer feminist for a long time but in many ways I was raised in you know democratic candidate campaigns and Um, although I was always kind of rubbing up against the tension of my identity and some of those, uh, tools, I still felt like I was contributing in a meaningful way. Um, and I remember in 2014, you know, sitting at my desk at this, what I felt like was a dream job and really like the Mecca of so much of the work that I had been working for. Um, and I remember watching Mike Brown's body lay in the street in Ferguson, Missouri And, um, it just, it just really fucked my whole world up. And, um, I spent really the next, I would say two weeks in a pretty like existential crisis Mm. around my career and around electoral political work. And, you know, I was working in a climate where people were saying, well, isn't it so great that there's a Democratic City Council? Isn't it so great that Democrats feel this way? And I was watching Democrats really fumble around race and around criminal justice and be completely unprepared to deal with the uprising. And um, I really asked myself a question at that time of whether I was doing my work unapologetically enough. And I was, I would leave this huge pack and I would go into the streets in DC and I was marching, I was risking arrest, I was staying up all night watching the live stream of my friends you know, being tear gassed. And then I would walk back into this pack and I would take that hat off and I would like do work to elect Democratic women. And that for me and the lack of bridge and the, la- and the feeling like I had to have these dual identities um, made me really answer that no, I wasn't doing my work mm. unapologetically enough, wow, that I wasn't you, contributing to movement fully. In a way that I felt like could really um, translate into the really the transformation of Black people's lives through public policy. And so, in the spring of 2015, about six months later, I put together a teeny bit of savings and I created um, Three Point Strategies, which is essentially, you know, my hope to be a meaningful contributor to black movement by um, providing electoral political strategy to really any black folks who wanted to use it as a tactic and a tool. And so I began taking on clients Black women candidates uh, who were running for office, as long as they were the most unapologetic ones in the race, I would take them on. They didn't have to be the most viable. Uh, and then I started to take on, you know, black orgs who were interested in electoral strategy. And um, you know, as Kayla mentioned. In 2017, I worked with five black women mayors who were running for office in what we call uprising cities where there had been high-profile murders of black people. Mm -hmm. And one of those was Tashara Jones in St. Louis. She was actually my first um, mayor that I took on. And um, I had the opportunity to meet Kayla. And um, she really, over the last two years, has been my closest and best thinking partner around what it means to translate electoral political power into um you know into trans transforming black people's lives black sweet queer sweet feminist sweet. love fest yes all the way oh yeah, For oh, our, yeah. our listeners oh, yeah.
1: can't see uh, the just like dances. love transmission that happened between your gazes <laughs> just now
0: <laughs> oh yeah no that's my There's
1: heart dream.
2: eyes happening so yes. um so <laughs> we're gonna just walk it through i, I want us to really um send this out to our audience and make it as easy as possible, right, for folks to really grasp, like, here's what to do and how to get involved. So one of the first questions I have, um, we were, like, sitting, at Autumn and I were, like, sitting coming up with the questions, like, okay, what do we need to know? So it's, like, what do organizers and social change makers need to know about the action
0: plan for this coming election? Mm, I love that. Okay, I'll get started, and then I'll, I'll jump in. One thing that I realized that I, I failed to mention is, so I'm leading this project with Kayla, which I'm so proud of, um, and in my mission to serve black women, um, I also uh, decided to take on, in a full-time way, being de- deputy campaign manager and chief of staff for Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor of Georgia. So I'm actually recording this yes. in Atlanta, wow. Georgia. And, um And so the action plan for voting is actually like super, super fresh because voters are already voting in Georgia. Um, So one thing that you can do is right now, anyone who's listening can go to vote.gov. And it's a nonpartisan website where you can check the status of your registration, figure out where your polling location is, and any rules that have changed in your state or locality around voting. So for instance, um, fucking Georgia is a voter ID state. That fucking sucks. That's whack but it will give you Mm -hmm. the exact identification for what you need to bring with you to the polling place so you can make sure that your voice is heard. Um, In other places, you know, early voting has started. In some places, you have to make a request to get an absentee ballot if you won't be there um, on election day. So vote.gov is, Mm -hmm. again, a nonpartisan website that can help you just get a plan for when you'll vote and how. And for all my people listening, young people, black people, uh, working people, Know that... Uh, not being able to vote on election day is not your fault. That is called being a busy-ass human in this world. Please make a plan. Mm. If you wake up, your car breaks down on election day, you wake up and your one of your children is sick, like that is something that prevents so many people from actually getting there. It's why election day should be a holiday. But just do- yeah. mm, It's why it is in most places. It's why it is in most places. But because <laughs> we still have these, this stank-ass bureaucracy, please- um, Stank. Please check it out in advance. And then secondarily, I just want to say that we are putting together a website that should be up within the next week called BlackNovember.org, where you can go to find all of your electoral justice ballot needs. Yeah. Awesome. Ooh.
3: I mean, I I don't have much to add other than, you know, it's important to then also have a day of action plan in the event Mm -hmm. that something happens. We, have, we know that they're purging uh, voter registration rolls. We know that there, there are going to be complications with ballots and long lines and poll workers who necessarily are not up to date on the current laws around identification. Missouri is also a raggedy ass photo ID state, but actually our <laughs> uh, Supreme Court in the state of Missouri just struck down photo ID because the state wasn't adequately funding people getting the necessary identification. And so you couldn't bar people from voting because of it. A lot of people who are not, you know, reading articles that come out as soon as they come out on the Missouri Times know this. <laughs> and you know, while I can make fifty Facebook statuses about it, it's probably not going to reach the entire <laughs> statewide electorate. So just being, yeah, yeah, you you might I might miss about five, and I just want those five people <laughs> um, <laughs> to know if they go to vote Of that they're going to have those resources and then also if you get to the polls and there's a problem that there are hotlines that you can call one eight six six our vote is a really really good one um that has been up for years it's it's you know really amazing lawyers who are on call you can literally just pick up the phone and call them and say hey i was turned away and they tell you how to go back in and advocate for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And they go to the Board of Elections if there are a series of problems. Um, and so it's just important to have those kind of tools on standby. We All of our literature that we are handing out at the door, one side is talking about what's on the ballot. The other side is just if you go and something goes wrong, here's every here's the number you call if you need a ride. Here's the okay. number you call if you get there and something's different. Here's the number you call. Um, if if any emergency whatsoever happens, and and I think that that's just helpful and it empowers the voter to feel like they're not walking into something by themselves. We can't right. be there with you like all always. We wish we could, but if we're not there, we want to make sure you can get in contact with us if there are problems when you get there. Awesome.
1: It's so useful too to think about like how even even the process of educating people about how to access their right to vote is a process of politicization because part of that process is like educating people about all the ways that the system is designed to disenfranchise them. Mm -hmm. Right. That like all the things that you have to be prepared to experience and what you need to be prepared to know in order to advocate for yourself, which feels to me very related to the next question that we wanted to ask y'all. Um, you know, we, we were thinking about the fact that one of the biggest challenges in this election, and I think in many of the recent elections, has been a very justified apathy um, and disengagement of people who are looking at this corrupt system and wondering what their role could possibly be in fixing it. Um, and specifically thinking in terms of, like, the the intersection between this Jessica, what you were talking about, about like recognizing that there is actually a formula for winning. Um, And that formula is made up of like the numbers that create that win are made up of individual people who want to be like seen in their wholeness. Um, (laughs) Not necessarily experienced as a number. Um, I'm wondering like for y'all, how do you, how do you think about motivating people who feel hopeless Mm. to be a part of that number like how do you what are the talking points that you use to really like marshal people and make them feel like um make them feel like their their participation in that number is something that's real and tangible yeah
0: wow I really love this question um and it's been a part of you know what I actually think makes three-point strategies just you know, good at what it does and a winning firm is because yeah. it's really at the heart of every question. Anytime we write a campaign plan, anytime we talk to a candidate, anytime we are providing strategy is we are thinking exactly about what the community needs um, and what they're interested in. Because time and time again, what we learn is people don't want to vote against something. They want to vote for something. And it's really not
3: hmm. much
0: harder than that. Um And so what, um, you know, I believe in, in this time is providing people with a really clear understanding of what they are voting for. Um for this race here in Georgia, you know, we have a brilliant, um, really genius black woman who's running to be governor. Um, and, uh, you know, we've done a lot of polling of young people, young people of color in particular, to see what they care about. And time and time again, they say, I actually don't want to hear about this you know, her opponent. I want to hear about what Stacey believes. I want to hear about her vision for Georgia. I want to hear about who she mm. is. I believe that I have the right to be inspired, but I also want to be clear about what it's actually going to do to change my life. And I've I've been really excited and challenged by that because it is, it is a nuance that white men don't have to hold, which is that Mm. so many of us mm. candidates we have to both inspire people and connect them to culture and you know whether or not they would invite us to a cookout as well as really meaningful public policy <laughs> and gratefully you know candidates like stacy yeah like white men don't have oh to be no inspiring. no Aww. no they just get to be <laughs> the <laughs> boss so yeah they just, just get to be the boss day one and so part of <laughs> um What's awesome, though, about working for candidates like Stacey and Tashara is that they actually are all those things. Um, And then I would say connected to that and this formula that you mentioned, Autumn, um, and what's so hilarious about some of the Democrats' strategy at the national level is that we actually already have the people that we need to win. They actually already exist, um, you know, mm-hmm. nationally. Uh, what a lot of uh, Democratic strategists call the new American majority, which is essentially a coalition of people of color voters and progressive white voters actually make up 52 percent of the voting demographic. If we only talk to people who, who, who agree with us, we actually would still win every time. Um, similarly, in Georgia, when we started this election, we had one point six million voters who were registered to vote and have never voted before. Of that Mm -hmm. 1.6 million, 617,000 are young Black people, ages 18 to 35, who are registered to vote. So no work that we have to do except to actually give them something to vote for. So how about that? Mm. And guess how many votes, usually Democrats in Georgia who haven't won a statewide election in 20 years, lose by 200,000. So we have mm. 1.9 million people who are waiting for a reason to vote. And we only right. knew 200,000. And so our job in this election, but really is emblematic of elections ac- across the South and in all through places that have been really left on the table, is to give people something to vote for. And so I think when we have this conversation, um, you know, all of us uh, with a delicious cocktail after this election, I think when people are beating (laughs) their head against the wall, like, how did they do it? What did they do? It's like, well, black people decided, one. Number two, we gave them something to vote for. And number three, we made the path clear on how it would actually positively affect and affirm their lives. And that's how we did it. And so if yeah. anyone needs that formula, yeah. it already exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, precisely. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Hey, I, I can also
3: think, I think oh, yeah, Yeah, I, I think that the history, a long history of how voting has occupied Um, Black communities and communities of color at large is so isolated. It is not connected to our daily realities. It's not connected to the issues that matter to us. Um, And the, the democratic structure is so top down, we spend the most money on the race that's the furthest away from us. So, you know, we're spending millions and millions of dollars to get senators elected right now. And school boards are just at the bottom of the ballot penny pinching you know and so really the conversation for for me often relies on people want to know the strategy like don't just come tell me to vote what am i what what's the plan if we're voting against someone right which we did in august you know like truth be told no one yeah. was super thrilled about the person challenging bob mccullough but it was like we got to go with what we got y'all yeah. and we knocked on the door and we said we're trying to out bob mccullough you know and they were like yeah I, I, it could be Slice bread <laughs> on the ballot against him, <laughs> and we're just going to vote right. for that, right? Because we're tired and we're frustrated, and we actually see the impact of this seat, the impact of this policy in our everyday lives. And I and I think what happens is we don't connect the ballot to power. Like we we talk about the vote as this very isolated, right. go exercise your vote. The history of the struggle for the vote, not actually the police department's budget right. is on the mm-hmm. ballot in the mayor's seat. Not that incarceration is on the ballot in the prosecutor's seat, the curriculum of your child's school is on the ballot in the school board seat, in ways that people can tangibly see their conditions change in that ballot, and that you're not just showing up when there are top ticket things, and you're coming in late, and you're coming in strong, and you're knocking on people's doors 15 times two weeks before the election, and then you're just gone. And so a lot of the work that we do at the Electoral Justice Project is hyper focused on local organizations because we think that that's like fundamentally key to, to like seeding the power that has to stay in that community so that a strategy can be developed. The process of investing millions every other year into a state and then drawing that resources out actually just creates gaps and and feeds that apathy where people say, well, like, oh, when it's the presidential election, everything's popping, you know, you can, you tripping over canvassers and literature in your mailbox. (laughs) It's all over the place, you know. And then municipal elections come around and black candidates can't even get, ten thousand dollars to actually help me somebody
0: Mm. help me and
3: so some of it is like a a a, a demand of those of us who are in the field to say that that strategy actually doesn't work stop coming late stop coming last minute and let's talk to folks about how the circuit attorney and the prosecutors and the city council and the state legislature all can work together for the good of our community if we if we have that plan intact um, and, and that's what we've been trying to do is use every here in St. Louis and within like this national work that we're doing with EJP is to facilitate a conversation about the long term so that folks know tomorrow we're also like we're going to be here and we're going to stay here and we're committed to that very same vision. So if I know Jessica and I know Three Point Strategies because they've won in all these cities, I know that they're coming for in relationship to, to get this mayor elected. And if I know Kayla, who's leading a local organization, who's always here and she legitimizes Jessica when she comes in and that candidate has both of their support, I'm more likely to say, yeah, this is, I'm going, I'm going in with my family. Mm. That's right. That's right. Because the plan has been, the plan has been sold. And so I think really we have to, we have to have an intentional conversation beyond november 6th beyond the primary it has to be in continuation people have to see something a larger picture in a way that we just haven't it's been so extractive over the over the last few years uh, and i think that's what people see in stacy they see stacy they see andrew they see Ben jealous they see these they're like oh you know hold on it's a conversation about black governors we taking over People and and so people. I'm in Missouri donating to three different gubernatorial campaigns that are not in my state because I'm like I see someone's talking about a strategy. I see a strategy. I see what's happening. How can I be a part of that from far That's away? That's right. That's
0: right. Hey. <laughs> yes, it's so true. And yes. and what 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 that brought up for me and what Kayla said is I actually was asked a question just yesterday. Someone goes, you know, it's so interesting that you know. <laughs> I always thought movement was so leery of electoral politics, but, you know, movement, whatever that means, I'm putting it in air quotes, but is, uh, trust you. And I only put in air quotes because it's like, you know, this them over there, trust mm-hmm. you over here. But we're all in movement. We all can be in movement. Uh-huh. And I think my my answer to them was, well, mm-hmm. because I show up even when I'm not asking them for anything. Yes. Right. So I want to pivot
2: I want to pivot to the the blackness of this upcoming election. But first, just a second, just one second, because we're getting to Black November. But I just want to say, what about the Russians? Like, <laughs> should we be concerned? Yeah. Are they going to
0: come steal it all? Look, I mean, I'm not actually going to lie to y'all. Um, I actually do think that we have, yeah, we, we have serious technological concerns around the... Um, Safety and security of our election systems. I think that that's true, Um, but but you'll you know, and I think that you're learning about me too. Is I'm a I'm a multiple truths person, and for me, I actually don't think the Russians are any more dangerous than the voter suppression that you know, people like Brian Kemp and Republicans across the country are doing. It's 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 compromising the integrity of our democracy just as much. Um, I think that money in elections are actually as dangerous as what the Russians are doing. I think that they are all threatening what we believe is an aspiring democracy and cannot achieve that if we continue to um, really allow some people's voices to matter over others. And so, you know, I think yes. (laughs) And I also think that that's one of the reasons why the work that we do is justice work is that we're intervening in a system that currently doesn't work for us, that people um, are allowing to be compromised, namely, you know, the person in the White House. And so, you know, I think that we really need a multi front strategy around how to get our elections to a place of something that we can be proud of. Absolutely. Mm
2: Thank you. Thank you. Stay vigilant. I, I feel like that's a, yeah, stay vigilant. And, you know, and I also think it is like, I really appreciate what y'all saying. Like there's yeah. time strategically to move against like the Buy Bob, you know, right. campaign. Right. And that that's sometimes the thing that will mobilize people. But fundamentally it's like yeah. for the sake of yeah. what? Like for my people, Bye Bob, for my safety, Bye Bob, for my kids, Bye Bob. And then that mostly it's like, well, how do we get people really excited? And that we get excited enough that there's a flood of people, who actually start to um, overwhelm the corruption, if that makes sense. So I want to talk about the exciting stuff, which is kind of like, is this the blackest, election ever that we've my had just, you know I want to hear about them, y'all like tell us about the black <laughs> landscape <laughs> and mm-hmm. like really getting specifics you know so we know about Stacy um there's Andrew Gillum running for governor in Florida I was just seeing my friend Jessamine Sabag does a bunch of voter oh, yes. organizing in Oakland and was just posting that it's like she's got an all women of color all black women right. um slate so I just want to hear from y'all what are some of the hot pockets of black excellence to look forward to voting for in November?
3: I mean it's everywhere. <laughs> We're you know, we always say this, um, you know, Black November is all up and down the ballot, right? So we I I really do think and, and um I'm I'm but I think about just the sheer amount of house races that are up that people are excited about, people like Ayanna Presley, um um, and, and then just like, we have, we have black governors on the ballot and I, I'm, I am nerding out about Stacey wow. Abrams. Like every time I get an email, I'm just like, Lord Jesus, yes. come on November 6th. Like I need to book my flight yes. to Atlanta cause I'm trying to be there when she wins, <laughs> you know, um. what, what a time is about to be in the A, you know? Um, yes. but, but I think that, you know, what has happened is that people, there, there was a unique conversation about in 2016 that happened when those election results came out and we saw black folks hold the democratic party. And then we started to, they started to look around and was like, wait, why are we voting for y'all when we could vote for our damn selves, you know? And, and we've seen a, yes. a, a large amount of women just across the ticket vote, like running for office. And then we've seen an, a, a super, super amount of brand new candidates that are black, and they are winning and i think that the conversation really does fall back to this what like that jessica said people are seeing change right like i talked we we are phone banking we're canvassing i talked to a woman who was like 92 years old and she's like if this is the last time i'm voting i'm voting against trump how do i vote against him on the ballot people are angry people are inspired it's really the perfect storm mm-hmm. of um, something to vote for and a clear thing to vote against, in such a way that like mm-hmm. people will be mobilized. And so when I think about Black November, mm-hmm. I do think about I think about the um, the races that maybe don't get national attention, like our school boards, where Black mamas are like, I yeah. want to, I uh uh-uh. uh, like what's happening is not okay. I think about our city councils, um, our state legislatures that are really like folks are really see we have so many young candidates under the age of 30 winning races um doing amazing grassroots oriented campaigning they're not trying to raise you know a hundred thousand dollars but they're committed to knocking on every door because someone like bird said to them that's the best way to contact your voter so they're like they're up and down the streets talking to folks walking into people's backyards like hey just wanted to let you know i'm running so I, I'm really I'm really inspired yeah. by just the mm. the yeah. way uh black candidates are even I- embracing grassroots organizing as a as a mechanism and pushing away from kind of the traditional things that mm. the Democratic Party requires. And we're seeing a lot of upsets. But if you actually look at the field, they're not upsets. It's what was destined is <laughs> what yeah. we've been waiting That's for. Right. Um That's right. because, you know, we've That's allowed right. awesome. white men to control a party and they're they're not they're actually not the electorate anymore.
0: Yeah. In twenty fifteen, my very first project that I did was this really cool campaign called the Reflective Democracy Campaign, where, you know, essentially when I started Three Point, it was genuinely to answer all of these questions for myself. I didn't actually know that it would grow and be something that employed you know, five black women <laughs> political strategists, um, and so at the time, my big question was: so, what actually is the makeup of elected leaders across the country? And so, um, in partnership with uh, this really awesome organization, yeah. uh, the Women Donors Network, is we did a mapping of every single elected seat across the country by race and by gender. And there are, if you go to Who Leads dot us, you can find this data. Who Wholeads.us. I'm just repeating it for our listeners. That's right. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so when we when we did this in 2015, the release demonstrated that um, 90% of elected leaders are white, uh, 65% of elected leaders are men, and, um, and that uh, women of color made up just 3%. Mm. And now, obviously, that's not just black women. That's all women of color. So if we were in a room of 100, only three would be women of color in elected leaders across the country. So they just actually re-released that data. And um, it's really fresh. It's literally like four or five days old. So if you go to wholeads.us, you will see the updated data. And in just three years, the number of women of color has risen by 75%. Now that's, yes, the number of women running for elected office has risen by 75%. Now that does not mean 75% of the women people running are women of color. What that means is that that 3% number has risen, Ah. you know, in literally that we've, we've gained almost two percentage points in our representation. And that is not an accident. And this is one of the things that I, I just hope we do a good job of, you know, remembering mm-hmm. <laughs> to bring Toni Morrison in this conversation, mm-hmm. but is that movement did this, okay? Democratic mm-hmm. strategists, um, the resistance, Donald Trump, no, no none of those none of them are responsible for what we're feeling right now. Movement did that. Movement created a conversation while Barack Obama was president. Movement uh, responded to the rise of white supremacy. Movement is the reason why Trump is holding on to the last, you know, you know, breaths of white nationalism. Movement is the reason why the resistance had a blueprint. Mm -hmm. Movement is the reason why Stacey Abrams could run in Georgia uh, in 2018. Movement is the reason why there are more black women mayors than ever before in the history of this country. Um, Movement is the reason that Andrew Gillum won in a primary where every national media outlet said that he could never Mm -hmm. win and that there were polls showing him 20 points down. And then everyone was shocked. And the cover of the New York Times was, how did this upstate victory happen? Because movement (laughs) is... Upset. I hate the word "shock" so a,
2: much. I just have to say, it's I feel like so around ridiculous. like me Too, around climate change, around elections, I am just like, you are not shocked; you are just not paying attention.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, I just want the I want we the headline stupid. to be the day after the election. <laughs> movement, did movement this, did this. That's you know? a better headline than black what I just movement said. <laughs> m- movement did it exactly because it's the truth, and it, that what that means to me is young black working class people actually shifted the paradigm of this country and moved us closer to, like, the, you know, the elected leadership that we deserve. Mm, Beautiful. Mm
1: -hmm. I want to ask another question that's looping back to something you mentioned early on, Kayla, about um, this idea of working from an electoral strategy that's, like, oriented towards co-governance when the individuals eventually get the seat and I was wondering if you could one just explain what you mean by that term for our listeners who may not be familiar with it um and and then maybe talk a little bit about like how do you what are some of the measures by which you ensure that co-governance is possible once people actually get the seat
3: Yeah. So I I think that's a really important question because that has to be the mark that we're moving toward. Right. And um, so I think about, you know, when, when we, I became a part of the electorate in 2008, um, you know, Obama was the first candidate I voted for. People were in, it was like lines, you know, I think I was in line for like four Mm -hmm. hours to vote um, in 2008. And I remember feeling this moment where we voted we went to some watch party we waited we watched he won everybody was shook not shocked <laughs> shook, not you know, shocked. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know um and then it, it just everything kind of fizzled right and then he came back around four years later and said let's do it again and then there was this upsurgence again where the lines were long and he won and then this thing fizzled. And then when we think about local races in particular, we see a candidate they are charismatic, you know, we 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 trust them, we say we hear their plans, we believe them, and then they win and then they go into city hall or they go into the state legislature, and we really don't hear from them again until it's election election season. So the conversation really, you know, and, and it didn't start in St. Louis. I actually think Jackson has a, a great model of this is how do we keep people engaged beyond election day? And how do we ensure that their input is actually being put into mm. policy? Um, and so for us, what it has looked like is on before you even win, we are writing or researching the policies that we want introduced so essentially, if you think about um if, if you yeah. watch Scandal, right?
2: Yeah. like, tell me and, how y'all and she are like walks Scandal. When
3: uh, she gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. And, uh, and um, Millie yeah. Grant wins, right? And, and Olivia yes. comes in with that folder and she's like, sign this, right? So that she can yes. restart B613. Mm-hmm. Here, sign these. What is this? A thank you card to the chief usher and his staff for moving you into the White House today. Also, your first executive order reserves a percentage of Pentagon funds in a blind emergency trust. It's basically lunch money for defense while we're waiting for Congress to approve your budget.
2: Done. now. Grab
3: yourself a drink. That's that's co-governance, right? It's like you have, don't worry about this. Just do this thing because this you have to sign it. But I'm orchestrating it happening. That's mm-hmm. right. And Millie signs it, no questions asked, and then boom, we're back. Jake's back. Everything's back. <laughs> this and, metaphor is um, absolutely my favorite metaphor for co-governance <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. And so so the conversation is like, how do we do that in a com- on a community-based level? Where when there's a conversation around, um, and, I, and I'll again use um, the, our most recent kind of what we're going through right now is transition of, of Wesley Bell into the seat that Bob McCullough historically held is when we're talking about changing the bail system in St. Louis and we're talking about um, police accountability, that the kind of standard operating procedures of the office and of the prosecutors is actually informed by what the community wants. And so there are, uh, in, in the ideal situation, there are like people movement assemblies that are around these issues that in the audience, the elected official is sitting in, not standing up at the mic and talking to folks, but actually listening to the experts who are experts because they have a lived experience around this. Um, and then, so, and and as we move toward that kind of ultimate goal, what we have is like, There are report outs, there are listening sessions, there are steering committees and different tables that are talking about areas of work that have, you know, that have people like, you know, traditional policy people, maybe some academics, some community activists, some clergy, a, a really good mix of the community sitting at a table and having a debate about an issue and then taking the best version of that that they came up with and that moving as is written into policy and i think that like it's it's not a radical idea it's it's the it is common sense that is saying if i trust you to go do a thing you don't have to do it on behalf of the entire community cuz you are not actually an expert on everything related to policy you're going to need help along the way and so we are in partnership with each other and not just when you need to be elected but every day that you're in that office that's
2: so helpful i think that um you know, part of why I wanted to lift up the Octavia quote around, um, you know, the people look for one leader or one voice or one tyrant, they end up in this sort of singular position. I think that the voter organizing, you know, I did voter organizing back in the day with the League of Pissed Off Voters. And one of the things that struck me over and over again is it's so individualizing. Like, it's so like, okay, now it's all about this singular candidate and their story and them getting up there. And the candidate the whole time is saying like, we, 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 but... It's still so, it still feels like such an isolating path. And so I love the way y'all are approaching strategy because it feels like you're saying this actually shouldn't be something that happens in isolation. Like this should absolutely be someone who is representing a community of people or multiple organizations, all this, you know, a mass of people. Who are able to come to someone and be like, your job is to execute on what we want to happen in our communities. And just remembering like, oh, that's what the purpose of the the position is supposed to be.
3: Yeah, I, I just think that in the way that we commission a person to draw
2: yeah. a picture,
3: that's the role of an elected yes. official. You're commissioned to put into policy the things that we want to see. Yes. Right. So like you maybe are holding the paintbrush, but your strokes are informed by mm, our I love voice. That. And so we're walking into that door together. So you, you didn't win, yes. homie. Like we yes. won. Okay. Like all in this yeah. together. Um, and I think that that has not happened it's one of the reasons why like at
0: three point for our like candidate intake form you know yeah. is we we have several criteria actually we're probably one of the only consultant consulting firms that just really have like we interview you
2: <laughs> right That's um great.
0: and and one of those things is is to say you know if i were to call someone in black movement where you live you know what would they say about you um, and, and actually ask that question to them and to say, have you shown up to the meetings? Have you have you been around? Do you know what folks are talking about? Do you know what's keeping them up at night? Um, and hearing their answers to that question is usually pretty clear indicator of how they've made a commitment to not just being a leader but to really being in community with people.
2: I love that. And it leads me to the next question I have. this question around like the role of organizations, the role of like radical organizations, revolutionary organizations, movement organizations inside this work, which is um, it's both to like be like, we're listening to the people and responding to what the needs of the people are. But there's also an additional role that movement organizations take on, which is saying where our people might be lacking in analysis or may have been shut out of the education system or may have been locked away in prisons or in other places where it's like... um, Uh, the weight of oppression has been so heavy that they have not necessarily been able to engage in, you know, thinking about electoral strategies Then I feel like or thinking about liberation strategies, period. I feel like that's where organizations come in and say, hey, like, we're going to do this political education and we're going to, we're going to build these relationships. And I feel like there's always such a split for those groups of like, we do engage in electoral or we don't engage in electoral and it gets all snarky, you know, like it's all like, Oh, we either do. And it's like, y'all are not strategic or we don't. And it's like, (laughs) y'all are sellouts. Right. And it just like, I just feel like it's just every election. It's just like the same cycle playing out of folks being like, our job is to liberate the people and guide the people. And like, and either trying to skip over the strategy of electoral politics, right? So there's just something here that I want to tease out a little bit more, hear some more about from you all, is like, what do you think is the most responsible thing that movement leaders, organizational leaders and organizations, folks who are like organizing people in the streets, how how can they best engage? Is it mostly like a get your folks voting, right? Or is it do the work to tie this into the larger political strategy or is it something
0: else look i mean i i think that the ejp is a discovery of this in many ways right i don't i don't know that i know for sure i don't have a complete and full assessment or of of or diagnosis of this um in fact i think part of my question around in 2014 around, you know, what is my contribution to movement if what I know how to do is electoral strategy, but I want to be in a political home. Um, It was that 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 just a perfect intersection didn't really exist. And I don't know that it ever will. And I think that's okay. I I think that's okay. What I will say is I think that the goal, I think that organization is a really beautiful thing. I think it's really necessary for people to have a home that where they can be not only politicized, but grown and provided tools and education um, in order to make both smart, but also just connected political decisions. I just, I think organizations like, St. Louis Action Council, BYP 100, you know, organizations like SONG, Southerners on New Ground that are really providing people a healthy environment Mm -hmm. to be together, to have some direct services and support, but also to just like be in really important dialogue. I just, I can't underscore how important I think that is to just like being alive, especially in this country. But, um, and, and electoral mm-hmm. politics is not a home. And that's one of the things that I think is an important distinction. Say it again. Mm. We are not a home, <laughs> right? Mm. It's It really is. It's not a home. You can't live here. Um, it's intended to be temporary. And as I was really making the decision to com- commit full time to movement, no matter how messy or how much it questioned this tactic, one of the things that kept coming to me was that, you know, uh, Harriet Tubman followed this you know, one particular North Star, and she had a trail of how to get there. And, um, and so many people trusted that following that North Star and crossing a particular path would, would get to liberation and freedom. But Harriet had to stop she had to take a rest she had to sleep she had to wash off the scent of her she had to be nourished and for me electoral political power is to reduce harm is it's a safe house along the way to liberation it is not liberation and so for me you walk you walk that journey with your political home and you stop at these destinations in order to protect yourself to protect your families to advance your journey um it's not the destination right no one was no one stayed in the safe house because they truly want it to be in liberation. And so Mm. that's how I think about it. And I think what what I would encourage any organization that's grappling with what it means to build a safe house is it truly is a risk. And I think that's why so many people don't wanna be let down. They don't wanna invest in something. They don't wanna tell people to vote for a certain candidate or a certain issue and then feel like it failed them. And for me, I just wanna say that um, we are all um incomplete in our leadership we are all taking chances on each other all the time and elected Mm -hmm. leaders are no different they should be on no other pedestal for you other than a person as Kayla said who can help us to like Mm -hmm. draw this picture and so take a chance I've never worked for a person who didn't disappoint Uh me at least once Mm. and that's part of it part of it is to be in deep rigor around the challenge of the humanness of all of this shit, right? That like, you don't think Harriet ever knocked on a door and said, you didn't turn your light on correctly. You didn't have the things that we needed. You know, they came after us and you said some crazy shit. You put us all at risk. Yes. Yes. She was negotiating at all times. But the point was that she had created that relationship with that person who was willing to take the risk with her. And Mm -hmm. that, for me, is the point. I absolutely
2: love that metaphor. I'm just sort of like, oh my gosh, that's the problem. People keep getting to the safe house and being like, I'm going to put up (laughs) curtains. Why isn't this my perfect house? I don't understand.
0: Exactly. No, you got to
3: go. Wake up in the morning and go. Yes. Yeah, can can I say one thing about the organization part, though? Sure, if that's mm-hmm. cool. Um, so, so I think about when we first decided to start Action St. Louis, and very quickly we're like, everybody's like, "If there's anything electoral, you need to call Kayla." And I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> actually, don't. I'm not there yet." Um, I I like I think about community organizing, like the way that we think about. Um, in mainstream, a lobbyist for a corporation, I think about an organization as the lobbyist for the people, right? Like we have the infrastructure and the capacity to do this nine to five, to do this in the daytime, to do this when the institutions are open, while our people are working, while they're raising their families. And they need to have the comfort and um, reassurance that someone's always working on their behalf, right? Always moving our agenda, always pushing that forward. Or co-conspirators in what we set the agenda to be, right? And sometimes what happens is in the political sphere, organizations come top down on community and establish priorities, and it actually should still be bottom up. In the same way that uh, electives are commissioned to actualize policy, so are organizations. And if you're not commissioned mm. by your community, then you're actually not in in that movement revolutionary space of, of being at this perfect intersection of being a co-conspirator and an advocate, right? And so I think... That we have, to, we have to have this political struggle about the two-party system. We have to have this political struggle about the actual significance of elected officials, of how representation manifests, that the Senate is actually not a direct representation of our uh, country, that there are structures that were set up long before any of us were thought of, some of our ancestors were thought of, that were literally created to preserve power for the few right and we have to handle those things and in the meantime there's a way that we can strategize for 20 years out and change the material of our condi- people's conditions right now and if we're not having the question conversation about right now then we're doing a disservice to folks and I I don't mm-hmm. fall on the electoral sword right like I am in um in a moment, where a lot of folks, I, I have conversations, I sit at tables, and I'm like, you know, we can we can be purist, right? Or we can fight on every single front as purely as we know how. And we have to be solid mm. in our political education. We have to be solid on the political front. We cannot have, we cannot feel comfort. Um and be content with having political conversations uh, and rigorous conversations and debate just for the sake of debate if it's not producing some action right and the left the left can we can we get so caught up in who's using the right words who has the right theory yes. who's using the right lens and people are actually dying because the budget is dedicating 60% on a city level to the police right and we're actually living under occupation because we're not going after the people who can make those. Decisions, and I think you know, like I want to be something in the alliance, like something along the lines of being as radical as radical as I can be, and also as real as I can be. In that, it is a privilege to work for an organization. It is a privilege to be in this work on behalf of other folks. And in that privileged space, we can't get so self righteous that we're not actually co conspirating with the communities and listening to what they need. And we don't know what's best for them. Right. Like, I'm not a mother. I can't tell a single mother what's best for her just because my ideology says voting is not important. That is actually like you have to be humble enough in your position to move according to what the community needs and not necessarily what you always think is best. And electoral electoral work is literally when we come face to face with that. Right. Like how do we stand in our integrity? How do we stand in our principle? How do we stand in our values? And do this ugly work that's super necessary um, for our folks. Um, and, and it's super hard for our folks. And I think that when we decided to create the Electoral Justice Project, you know, and we could tell that origin story of I I and Adrian, you were there, right? I'm like, <laughs> We gotta talk about some electoral stuff, you know. And I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) Everybody looking at me. Wow, I'm gonna get Jessica, you know, like because I met her in St. Louis. We have only talked twice, and I'm like, you know, I know we don't know each other like that, but we gonna have to. Can we be friends and do this thing together, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's actually. Like she was like, girl, where you been? And I'm like, where you been? My partner is telling me, like, have you met Jessica Bird? And I'm like, who's who is Jessica Bird? Somebody put me in touch with this woman because I need to meet her. And it's actually a year to the day today that we had our launch call to launch EJP to the world, right? Oh my god. And it's it's so
1: What? This is the anniversary. It's, it's literally
3: our anniversary. Um and I'm I'm grateful for the fact. That we had that vision and it's not been perfect. And it's it's been really hard because we also I'm also leading a local organization and Jessica's also leading a gubernatorial campaign and a firm. And Riky is also leading like a whole organization and a transition team in Jackson and trying to practice this idea of co governance.
0: Yeah, we have a little squad, yeah. Rakia Lamumba, Yes. And that's similar is that um, when I was working on the mayorals, um, Rakia was leading her brother's campaign, uh, Chokwe Antar Lumumba in Jackson. And um, it's so funny because she emailed me and I said, you know, I actually only work with black women, but I love you. And when this is all over, I hope we can get together. And we had this like two hour phone call, um, right after she, you know, uh, helped him win that huge and really exciting race and Jackson. And I said, you know, I, you have to meet Kayla. We have to figure out how you can be a part of this with us. And, um, EJP in a lot of ways has been really healing for me and really unlearning so much of the stuff that Kayla and I are able to say to you all right now. I I did not know how to get to five years ago in my career because they're just such a rigid path to leadership for political operatives in this country. And it's very capitalist. It's very patriarchal. It says that you have to be shitty and mean to get things done. And I'm a person that leads with like a lot of love and care. Um, and uh, and I still win shit. <laughs> a lot of stuff. I'm just clear. I'm clear. And I think that Kayla and Rakia have helped me have helped me to get to that clarity that I wasn't crazy before, that this really could happen, that all black women could lead it, that we could write strategy and truly be together. Like we really, we don't spend a lot of time in hierarchy. We really care deeply about each other and each other's lives and we move work. And that for me has just been the, one of the best experiences of my of my professional life for sure.
2: Mm. Um, that's incredible. Um, the last little question that I felt interested in was this question around like third party stuff, right? I feel like third party is another one of those like conversations that comes up each election. And I'm just wondering for y'all, are there any places where you're like, there's some exciting experimentation happening around third party stuff? Um, cause I always feel like it's a not, it's not a question of yes or no to it, but just like yeah, we need more than two parties. Where can we grow those experiments? Um, and I'm just interested if there's any places y'all are looking at, like, yeah, here's some cool places where this can grow and and help us, not harm us in the next electoral cycle.
0: Um, well, one, you know, I just... Um... I think that New York and what just happened with the recent gubernatorial election is a really good example. Um, Our beloved Maurice Mitchell is the new ED of the Working Families Party. Um, You know, I don't know if the Working Families Party kind of identifies as like a third party. I think that they believe that they are a progressive alternative to what's being offered that truly champions working families. And I think that we are watching them experiment all across the country. And then secondarily, you know, to that, um, and I think that that, that race was really fascinating because it really took on New York establishment in these like really bold and unapologetic ways. And it was just really dope to see, um, how this institution that could really kind of force a lot of conversations, um, closing Rikers Island, uh, you know, getting ice out of schools. Like those are really big, bold things for an entire state of New York to say. So, um, But then I would say secondarily is I actually think that the two-party system is one of the greatest barriers to Black political representation ever. Um, I've thought about this a lot Um, and and what some of the boulders in the road are for Black people's access and entry to political power. And I think the two-party system is uh, unbelievably confining um, and limiting and just, to be honest, dangerous because it keeps us in these very clear uh, these very clear buckets that really don't don't um don't allow us to be in our fullness and also creates a level of web that really is a systemic barrier and what I've noticed is that people really are especially young black people are moving away from the Democratic party and there are a lot of you know really basic think pieces about why um, and I actually would say that in my experience is that um People want specifics about what it is that you actually are going to do. And when you have a two-party system that is supposed to truly answer for 300 million people across the country, the the, the agenda is just not clear enough. And so what I'm, I'm witnessing is young black people in particular are saying – I am going to vote and I'm going to do this very specific questioning of the things that I care about. And I want you to be able to respond to those things. And that's where I think that there's a lot of opportunity for the movement for Black Lives, for Black movement across the country to really get clear about its agenda, and then to actually fill that void and fill that political home that is now being voided um, and really allow people to get clear on what they're trying to do and help them to do that.
3: I, th- I think that there's a history even within the two party system of black folks organizing um space within it for themselves. I think about you know fannie uh Lou Hamer and the the freedom Democratic Party uh, and I even think about a poor poor example that was current or like the the Bernie Bros and then this new like wave of democratic <laughs> socialists, right but this idea that we know that the ultimate goal is to break down this two party system. And how do we drag it to the left so that it breaks? Right, like how, like how do we pull it apart mm. from the inside? Because mm-hmm. it has to, it has to be shattered. If something can't be built while it exists. We have to actually, like, moderate Republicans are going to have to break from the, the super nationalist conservative wing that's growing rapidly, and deep people who vote Democrat but are deeply more left than that are going to have to break from the moderates who are like, well, maybe, you know, just let's wait, you know, the hold oners. Mm -hmm. The hold oners. (laughs) We're going to have, we're going to have to, yeah, just like, wait a second. And you're like, like, Nancy, you 90, calm down. Okay. It's time. It's time to move, you know? And I think we're going to have to shatter it in that way. And we're going to have to be intentional about the space that we cut, like we carve out for ourselves. Right now in it. Right. And so that's that's Mm. what I really love about Mo's leadership in on in the Working Families Party is that he understands sometimes you're going to have to play the Democratic primary. That's our turf. That's when we need to go at their necks because we cannot allow moderates to keep saying, well, yeah, minimum wage. Yeah, maybe ten dollars. Fifteen. We've been saying 15 for 15 years already. Raise it. Get it done, you know. <laughs> like, don't talk to me about this. Well, maybe we could have, you know, some pro life Democrats. No, we can't. No, we cannot. They do not belong <laughs> no, here. This is not their space. Send them someplace else, you know. And I, we have to get so clear about our political lines that we start to say, oh, you're that kind of Democrat. Oh, you, oh, you're this kind of Democrat. Oh, these are different types of Democrats. And right now, we got this, this, uh, odd bedfellow situation where we've been in the same party with folks who are like are you sure you're a Democrat do you might like are you just not wanting to be a Republican because of where you're geographically located that's what happened you know and that's happening on the local level and and I really do think that we have you know history is sometimes a one of the best lessons what if the Freedom Democratic Party didn't fold, right? Like what happens if that space is continually cultivated and developed and people know that in the democratic primary, there's a Democrat and there's a freedom Democrat and they're choosing their person to go on to the general and fight there. And and that's kind of the, the way that we have to look Uh, And again, this is this is that part about being both radical and real. We're not going to get over the electoral college is not going to go away tomorrow. The two party system is not going to go away tomorrow. You still need to take your ass to the polls on November 6th and understand that people are asking these real questions and investigating what real power looks like in a way that hopefully will seed these conversations and manifest something drastically different than what we are like having to live in right now and we just we have to do both we have to look ahead and be in the present at the same time
1: beautiful thank you so much i just want to uh as we as we close i just want to give gratitude on behalf of like myself and Adrian, but also all of our listeners and all of the people who I know are going to like feel as moved as I feel right now to actually like go out and figure out my voting plan right now. Yes, please yes, make your
3: action plan.
1: And truly, but I feel so moved by um how visionary you both are and how visionary your work is. And particularly this last question that you named, Kayla, about like we have to ask ourselves how different things would be if there had been a different, yes. um, if, if this visionary alternative had survived, you know, 40, 50 years ago, like if we are in a, in a similar political moment right now where we have a visionary alternative, let's not make that same mistake. That's right. Um, so thank you for just really clearly naming that. And thank you right. both so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy, visionary, hectic schedules to talk to us about elections and end times. Yeah,
3: you yeah, um, can do this. We we're gonna put things. links yeah.
1: in thank you. Y'all are so fucking brilliant. Adrian and I have been like chatting each other inside and being like, they're so smart. They're so smart. Oh uh-huh. my God. <laughs> I'm so smart. Um, we are going to put in the show notes, we're going to put the link to vote.gov so that folks can follow up and figure out their election plans. We're going to put in the link uh, blacknovember.org yes. so that folks can figure out how they can continue supporting
0: your work. Um, and and um, EJP.M4BL.org as well. and EJP.M4BL.org. For any- and anyone who's listening could also text EJP to 91990 and they'll get text alert. On everything that we're up to as well. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: so smart! Oh, Look yeah, at all these we, different we strategies. Fronts, we surround you, you know? all fronts.
3: <laughs> we text you. We call you. We're online. Exactly. We, got you. we touch you. However, you need to be touched. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show.
2: You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash Show. <laughs> Thanks. Music for today's
1: show comes from Tunde Alani Ran and Mother Cyborg.
2: How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen.